These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali. Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that, that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities, for, store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor, in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used, used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Amen. Not sure if anyone here has ever been to Norfolk Island. Hand up if you... Okay, we've got a couple of people, four or five people who've been there. Um, I've never been there, I have to confess. But from the people that I've spoken to, they tell me that the whole history of the island has been dominated by one event. The whole island has been shaped by one thing, and that is the mutiny on the bounty. Uh, you know the story, Fletcher Christian seizing control of the boat from Captain Bly, uh, setting him and half the crew off in a little boat, and then he took the bounty with the mutiny crew on board. Um, if you go on a guided tour of Norfolk Island, you can go and visit Fletcher Christian's home. Uh, there are still relatives of Fletcher Christians who are living on the island. Uh, the whole island has been shaped by that one event. On the 8th of June every year, they celebrate Bounty Day, which was the day that the 194 mutineers came to Norfolk Island. They'd come from Pitcairn Island where they'd spent some years before arriving there. That one event has shaped the entire history of that island. Well, for the people of Israel, there is one event 
that shapes their entire history. And it's the event that we read about here in the book of Exodus. God rescuing his people from their slavery in Egypt and leading them to the land that he had promised to give them. Uh, In Genesis, we're given some very big promises from God about what it is that he intends to do. Promises made to Abraham, passed on to, uh, to Abraham's son and grandchildren. Promises about gathering his people, forming them into a nation. But it's in the book of Exodus that they actually become that nation. And God clearly makes his covenant with them, formalizes his relationship with his people. In Exodus, we read about God saving his people in the most dramatic and extraordinary fashion to lead them out of their slavery in Egypt. And this event, this salvation event, going through the desert, the covenant that God makes with them, that's what shapes them as a nation, as a people. It's the event that they will continually look back to throughout the course of their history. It's the event that will show them who they are. It's the event that will show them how it is that they ought to live. But these events also have a great significance for us today as well. So the exodus of Israel was really just a shadow of what it was that God was planning to do through his son Jesus. The rescue that God brings about in Exodus is really just a shadow of the, of the magnificent rescue that God will bring about through his son. Now, each week that we look at Exodus over these next six weeks, we're going to ask the same three questions every time. They're the questions that are on your notice sheet, the, the talk outline there. We're going to ask three questions. First question is this. What does the passage tell me? This is the basic comprehension question. What are the important things that I need to notice from this chapter that we're looking at today? Second question is, what does the passage tell me about how God deals with his people? This is the theological question. This is the question where I can figure out things about God from looking at what this passage says, looking at how God relates to his people, how God deals with his people. And then there's the third question, which is always an important question to ask when you're looking anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. What does the passage tell me about how God deals with his people in Jesus? Now, search as you might, you're not going to find the word Jesus in the book of Exodus. But everything about the book of Exodus is pointing me to what it is that Jesus will do. So when I look at Exodus, I need to understand how those things will find their fulfilment in Jesus. The events that we read about in Exodus will show us how it is that God works to save his people. So let's start with Exodus chapter 1, and I do hope you've got your Bible open there in front of you to follow along. What does the passage tell me? What does this passage plainly say? Well, Exodus opens by telling us the names of the people who made the trip from Canaan down to Egypt during the time of the famine. The names of Jacob's 12 sons. Kind of starts in a pretty abrupt way, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't start by saying long, long ago in a land far, far away. It doesn't start by giving us any of those kind of date references or anything like that. It just launches straight in and says, these are the names of those people. It's almost like turning on the television and you're halfway through the show. Like you're supposed to just remember that we're actually partway through the story. And I think that's what the writer is intending to do. So he knows that his book 
follows on directly from the book of Genesis. You need to understand the events of Genesis to get what's going on here in the book of Exodus. Exodus opens with this very quick reminder of where we're up to in the story. In fact, it opens, those first six verses tell us the names of those people, those descendants of Jacob who came down from Canaan to live in Egypt. And the important thing to realise here in these verses is that these are known people. They're known by God. They are God's people. He's already made covenant, made made promises to them. He's already called them to be his people through Abraham. God made these extraordinary promises about blessing them, about being their God, about giving them the land of Canaan to live in and making them into a great nation. Abraham believed those promises. He trusted that God would do what he had promised to do, that God would be faithful. And those same promises from made to Abraham were passed on to his son Isaac and then passed on to Jacob and now passed on to Jacob's 12 sons. Those 12 names that we have there are, by and large, the 12 tribes of Israel, the people who will become that nation of Israel. Just 70 of them when they went down, counting everyone together, there were just 70 of them. But the next thing that we're told, verse number seven, is that that whole generation died. Joseph, the first one to go down to Egypt, and all of his brothers have now gone. As I said, there's 350 years has passed between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. And then look at the very next thing that we read, verse seven. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. There's a whole lot of echoes of Genesis here in this verse. Remember what God had said to Adam and Eve in the garden? They were to be fruitful and multiply. That was what was going to happen to Abraham. That was what God promised to Noah, that he needed to be fruitful and multiply. That's what God told the people to do at the plain of Shinar, told them to spread out, fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Well, it's now happening And did you notice that it says that they've become, they've multiplied greatly and they've become exceedingly numerous? They haven't just grown, they've boomed. There were 70 of them that went down to Egypt, but we're told a little bit later on in Exodus that there are now at least 650,000 men. So we've probably got a population of somewhere between 1 and 2 million people living in this land in Egypt. 70 of them went down, and they went down because Joseph had become Pharaoh's right-hand man, and they went down so that they could avoid the famine in their own land. But time passes. We've moved on a few hundred years. There's a new Pharaoh in charge. He's never heard of Joseph. He knows nothing about what Joseph did to save Egypt. And he sees the growth in the number of Israelites as being a threat to the, to the stability and the security of Egypt. Verse number eight. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to, the, to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly. We must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even, become even more numerous. If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So he wants to establish a shrewd plan for dealing with them. First part of the shrewd plan is just to work them hard. 
Pharaoh gets them to build and they are in an enforced slavery. The plan was to work them into the ground. One of the great ironies, I think, as you read through this chapter is what does he get them to do? He gets them to build store cities. Now, the whole reason that they're in Egypt in the first place was because Joseph's great plan to build storage for the grain in the, in the seven good years so that they'd have grain in the seven years of famine. I mean, this was Joseph's idea, but now the people are there as slaves building store cities for the new Pharaoh who knows nothing about what happened with Joseph. Well, that didn't seem to work. They've become even more numerous in number. So Pharaoh sets in for plan number two, tells the Israelite midwives that they are to kill any boys who are born to Israelite women. Now, this plan had potential. Get rid of the men and then the women that are left as they grow, well, they can just intermarry with the Egyptian men around and just phase them out very slowly over time. But the plan didn't work. The midwives were told they feared God and they wouldn't do what the Pharaoh had said. And then again in verse number 20, we read that they have grown again in number. They're continuing to grow in size. Pharaoh tries to reduce their numbers and God seems to make them grow at an even faster rate. Well, the chapter ends with Pharaoh's plan number three. He's going to go from house to house and get every every Israelite young boy and throw them into the river. The midwives hadn't been able to do what they were told to do, so he goes for the less subtle approach of simply killing the little boys. It's frightening to think of it, isn't it? But it's effectively what's happened right throughout our world at different times. It even happened in the 1990s in Bosnia, killing off the young men to stop them forming an army when they grew up. It's not a plan that was just unique to the Pharaoh. It's a plan that's been used throughout history. And we'll see how Pharaoh's plan works out next next week. So that's what the passage tells us. But what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? As we look through these chapters, I think there's a couple of things that really stand out about how God does deal with his people. The first, and it's kind of not at first obvious, the first is that God is clearly faithful to his promises. Abraham's descendants have become as numerous as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the sky. When they went down from Canaan to Egypt, there were just 70 of them. Tiny little group, they wouldn't have even been noticed in Egypt. But 350 years later, they haven't blended into Egyptian society. They haven't given up on God and his promises. They've kept their identity and they have clung to God's promises. And now they're exceedingly numerous. The whole land is filled with them, the writer tells us. They've become so great in number that the Pharaoh feels threatened by their presence now in the land. 70 years before, they wouldn't have even noticed the presence of 70 people. Sorry, 300 years before, they wouldn't have even noticed the presence of those 70 people. But now the Pharaoh wants to reduce their numbers. But not even the Pharaoh, the mighty ruler of Egypt, can stand in the way of what it is that God is doing. He's fulfilling his promises. He's doing what he said he would do. God intends this people to grow and they're growing. Pharaoh opposes them, but God makes them grow even more. God is faithful. He will do what he has promised to do. 
And in a sense, that's what the whole book of Exodus is about. God fulfilling his promises. But there's another thing that I think comes up out of the story that we learn about God. And that is that God is faithful to those who revere him. We have that story about those two Israelite midwives, that they obey God rather than obeying Pharaoh. They have to choose, and they choose to be faithful to the God of Israel. Now, they would have known the potential consequences of their actions. If Pharaoh thought that they had tried to cheat him, well, he would have just had them put to death. Goodness me, he's going to kill a whole bunch of babies in just a few more verses. He wouldn't think twice about knocking off two midwives. But God blessed them for their actions. God always blesses those who are faithful to him. doesn't mean that their life will always be easy or that they'll never have any difficulties in life. But those who trust God, well, God will be faithful to them. It's a funny thing that happens in this chapter that you kind of may not notice. It's a funny thing that happens with names. See, on the face of it, the most powerful man in this chapter is the Pharaoh. But we actually don't know his name. The writer doesn't bother to mention which Pharaoh this is. He would have known who the Pharaoh was and he would have known his name. Historians today uh, kind of speculate that it was one of these two, not exactly sure about the timing, but one of these two was the Pharaoh. We know their name today. But But the writer doesn't even bother to mention the name of the Pharaoh. But did you notice whose name he did mention? He mentions the name of those two lowly midwives. People who in the society of the day would have been nobodies. Nobody would have known who they were, but everyone would have known who Pharaoh was. But we get a story where we're not even told Pharaoh's name, but we're told the names of these two ladies. Shifra and Puah. Shifra means beautiful and Puah means splendid. Some guy who thinks he's something, well, we don't even get to find out his name. But two people on the face of it who are really nobody, two women who were faithful to God, well, their names are recorded forever here in the scriptures. See, in the end, the important people in the story are the ones who fear and revere the Lord. The ones who know that God rules over all things, the ones who seek to be faithful to him. Third question, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people in Jesus? As we look through the book of Exodus, we're going to see a whole lot of parallels between their experience and our experience. And in a way, that's to be expected. That's God's people then in the pages of Exodus, and we are God's people now. But I think this passage, there are two things that characterise Israel's experience that we can relate to as well. And the first is this. There's a sense of frustration when you read through that first chapter of Exodus. They're frustrated by what their experience is in Egypt. God has given, uh, God is going to save them. He is going to rescue them. And, and God has saved us. But He hasn't promised that life will be a bed of roses once you come to that point of faith in Jesus. There's going to continue to be frustration in this life. Even as you seek to follow Jesus, there's going to be hardships and difficulties that we'll face. Like the Apostle Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. 
Not may be, but will be. The Christian life will have its fair share of frustrations. It doesn't mean God's forgotten us. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It just means that we live in a world where sin continues to taint our lives. But the other thing that we see here that points us to Jesus is that God is faithful to his promises. And we know that even far more than they do. Those 70 who made their way down from e- down to Egypt will have grown to be a great nation, just like God promised they would. They know that God can be trusted to fulfil his promises and they know that God will take them to the land that he's promised to give them. There's a great verse in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13, it says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. The people of Israel probably never felt more like aliens and strangers than they did in these opening chapters of the book of Exodus. Pharaoh saw to that, didn't he? But they're clinging to the promises that God has made. Promises of a place to call home. And the lesson for us is that God has made promises to us as well. The people of Israel knew that they were aliens and strangers in the land. They knew that God had a better place in store for them. And we need to remember that we're aliens and strangers here on earth because God has prepared a place for us. We'll experience frustration in this life and that's to be expected because we are aliens and strangers. Jesus promises that he has prepared a place for us. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just some vague hope that we have. It's a certainty, like the writer of the Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful.